Welcome to the 152nd installment of Ear to the Ground, the Land Stewardship Project's audio podcast on family farming, sustainable agriculture, local food systems, and local democracy. I'm Brian DeVore, editor of the Land Stewardship Letter. Over the past several years, the Land Stewardship Project has been working with members of local communities to figure out how to transition farmland to the next generation. One of the areas LSP has been working in is the community of Plainview in southeast Minnesota. LSP's Plainview Land Access Organizing Committee, a collaboration of farmers, local business owners, and other leaders in the area, has been working to not only bring retiring and beginning farmers together, but to communicate to the larger community the importance of successfully transitioning farms onto the next generation of land stewards. One of the ways the committee carries out its work is by sharing stories of people's relationships with the land. Such storytelling provides some critical grounding on how important family farming has been to the history of a community. But it can also offer a glimpse at what the future may hold if we choose to support getting more people on the land raising food sustainably. On a recent wintry Saturday afternoon, farmers and other rural residents gathered at the historic Thielman Opera House near Plainview to share stories about their own relationships with the land. Participants also shared locally produced food and artwork that represented how they feel about their community and its people. This podcast features a few excerpts from the Thielman storytelling event. First, we hear from beginning farmer Melissa Driscoll, who describes a discussion that took place after the performance of Look Who's Knockin', LSP's one-act play about an older couple grappling with the future of their farm. Uh, Melissa Driscoll, I live uh, between Kenyon and Wanamingo, Minnesota, with my husband Jay, and we just moved there in 2010, so I'm a beginning farmer. Jay does computer work and helps me out a fair amount, but (laughs) it's kind of my dream, and I dragged him out there. I just thought briefly that I would tell a little bit of the story of um, when that play that they just talked about was given in Zambroda at Crossings, and and we live next door to Mary Dorr, and she's been a goat farmer in the sustainable egg community for many years, and she's just starting to really actually completely get out of goats. She is selling her herd right now. In the, she's in the midst of selling it. But we were at the play, and afterwards I agreed to talk a little bit, and I'm a beginning farmer, and a more established farmer spoke. And one of the women in the audience, who was maybe in her 70s, is trying to pass on her farm, and she said, well... This woman came to us, but she doesn't have a husband with her, and she doesn't have a partner, and we just, that just isn't going to work. And Mary stood up in the back, and she said, Betsy, what are you talking about? (laughs) You know, because Mary's been on her farm by herself for many years, and it worked for a long time. I mean, she had a lot of interns. She brought a lot of people out to the farm. She has, the whole community of Kenya knows who she is and hangs out with her, and does things on her farm, and she hires local people to do... I mean, she's really built a community there. And now I think we feel really lucky that we're part of that community. And um, we share a plow truck and uh, share other things, you know, share her her old goat, uh, her cheese room I use to pack produce now. I guess the story is, I think we were... Some of us were surprised by that, well... You have to have a man and a woman, or you have to have two people. Well, some people are on their own, and that's fine, and let's not prejudge that or think it's not going to work if the person has a, a good idea and is very committed to farming.
Next, Wyman Schultz provided a glimpse at why he returned to the Plainview area to farm after working in the high-tech field for several years. So uh, I've been away from Plainview for a number of years after I turned graduated from high school and uh, recently came back uh, a little over a year ago. And my have things changed, but they haven't. There's still a reluctance to change around here, but things have changed. One of the things I noticed was when people were out there in the field working things in the field, working up the soil. You used to be able to smell it from miles away. And since I've been back, I don't smell the soil anymore like I used to. Something missing that used to be there before. So I've come back, and a while ago, a few years, I had my son come up here, and uh, he spent some time with Marge. And he had turned into a city boy, (laughs) but he got a taste of what it was like to be out working with the soil again. And uh, with that, uh, that had kind of changed things for me when he came back up, went through a summer with Marge. And before that, I had uh, read a book um, that was uh, pretty influential, Omnivore's Dilemma, which probably a lot of people have heard about. Working as a uh, high-tech guy for a couple different companies, uh, over the years, uh, coming back here, wanting to get out from the office and back into some real work (laughs) or some honest work. Uh, I'm just starting out again. And last year I did my first, uh, I'm calling it research and development. So I didn't sell too much, but I'm learning how to grow again. And I'm learning that it's not about just growing the plants that I want to sell. It's about growing the soil that's going to grow the plants that I want to sell. Because I've learned a whole lot about what I don't know. That's what it gets down to. So here I am fumbling around here this last year. I had a few good things happen, and I've had a few things happen that kind of set me back, like learning that you can't just go out there and work and work and work and work and work and not have some consequences, like, um, like maybe you should drink enough when you're out there working your butt off. And I ended up this summer with uh, kidney stones because I had been chronically dehydrated. (laughs) One of those things they don't teach in school. So anyway, um, went through this last year, research and development, and am now at a point where I'm trying to do some season extension. And uh, hopefully, I get myself to the point of confidence and cooperation with community that maybe this year, I'll be able to have a few sales, be able to get a little more under my belt as far as knowing what to do and go for my big goal, which is trying to transition the family farm to a sustainable agriculture. Beginning farmer Daniel Miller talked about his own return to southeast Minnesota and, as often happens in rural communities, how one thing leads to another. I grew up with uh, Nan's son, Joe, um, who is now a a farmer right next door to me. And that's how how I I got into farming was... I had graduated from the University of Minnesota and moved back to Millville with my family and was sort of wondering what I was going to do with my life. And I started looking for odd jobs, and uh, Margot gave me a job pulling weeds in her garden. And I did that for, like, you know, off and on for, yeah, kind of anything anything that I could. Yeah, I painted the barn. I, I built that goat shed thing, to, or helped build that goat shed thing. So... Well, yeah, so I I worked for Marge for, you know, off and on for probably three or four years, and Jack, and 
and just doing a bunch of stuff. And I worked for some other farmers. I worked for uh, an organic dairy farmer, Jerry Weebush, and I worked for the Holsts, who are here somewhere, I think, or were here. Yeah, just fell in love with, with working outside, and I hadn't, I was kind of, I think I was a lazy kid growing up, and, you know, just didn't, you know, we had a garden, my mom had a garden, I was just never interested, and all of a sudden, you know, when I was 22, I just had this extreme urge to work outside and do work, and it was just a beautiful thing. I mean, I don't know what the impetus was or, or how it how it started, but um, I just fell in love with it, and it just so happened that um, Nan's son, Joe, who I had known growing up, was moving back into the area and just bought a farm right outside of Millville, and I was like, wow, this is, you know, this is crazy, he's, you know, he's going to be farming, and it just so happened that Joe's wife, um, Rebecca, um, had a sister who was also interested in farming and had come to work on their farm. And, you know, I was, you know, I was the eligible bachelor in the area. And so, you know, I think it was kind of a set up thing and um, it worked really well. And we were married within a year and, and then it, and then it just so happened that the, the farm next door was for sale. So I was like, oh, well, we're getting married and we should buy this farm and start farming. And, and Margo at some point said, well, you have to have a pickup truck first. So, no, it was the, oh, yeah, it was, wait, no, it was the, it was the pickup first, then the, then the dog, wasn't it? Because the dog, the dog went with the pickup, and that was, that was part of my main, you know, the way that I, I got my wife Hannah was, you know, I had the pickup and the dog, the cute dog, the cute puppy, and so then I got, and then we decided the next logical step, you know, I had the, the pickup, the dog, and the girl, and then, and then it was pretty clear that we needed to buy a cow and start milking a cow. So I bought a cow from, from the farmer that I was working for, and we started milking her. And we've been, we've been on our farm now. This will be our, the start of our fourth full season on our farm, and we're doing just vegetable farming, and it's, it's going really well, and we really love it. And, you know, it, it's, been, it's been a real challenge for me, and, but it's been a really good challenge, and it's just been really fun to do something that really is satisfying and just really gratifying in so many different ways. And it's been really fun just to be slowly working my way to being involved in the community. And, you know, it's been amazing how farmers just around us have been interested in what we're doing and have really, I mean, there's absolutely, you know, for for any beginning farmer starting out, it's, you know, the number one thing that I would say advice to give is is get to know your neighbors and really get to know get a really strong support system of experienced farmers in your area and just glean all that all that knowledge off of them because that's I've been doing that for you know eight years now just being a sponge of of trying to learn all I can and and have experienced farmers bail me out so it's been great. Local banker Dean Harrington read a poem of his called Fire Whistle and talked a little about the farmer and the community that inspired it. Don't tell me I'm too old to climb the windmill. For the 57 years I've been on this place, when the fire whistle blows, I'm up that windmill. I can see the town from the platform. I can see the fire hall from the platform. I can see where the fire trucks are headed from the platform. I've watched a church burn. 
a grain elevator, a hardware store. And you didn't fool me by removing the bottom rung of the windmill frame. I got the stepladder out and got up there anyway. When the fire whistle blows, I'm up that windmill. And that's actually a story, um, a, a real person, and, and he was in his 80s, and he'd charge up the windmill every... But it, it has to do with kind of the, the particularity of place. And, I mean, from his farm, he could see the town and so forth, and he utilized that for his curiosity and entertainment, I suppose, in some ways. But I think uh, one thing that I've noticed over the years in the banking business is how often people will um, refer to their home not as the home farm, it's the home place. Farmer and researcher Paul Waska shared a poem about one aspect of our relationship with animals on the farm. Let them stand for the bullet and stare the shooter in the eye. Let them die while the sound of the shot is still in the air. Let them die as they fall. Let the juggler blood spring hot to the knife. Let the freshet be full. Let this day begin again, the change of hogs into people, not the other way around. For today, we celebrate again our lives, wedding with the world. For by our hunger, by this provisioning, we renew the bond. George Howe described 80 acres of Mississippi River bluff land he grew up on and how important it is to make a commitment to protecting such natural treasures in perpetuity. I was very lucky to have grown up on a beautiful piece of land, about 80 acres of bluff land just north of La Crescent on what they call the Apple Blossom Scenic Drive. The land got in our family. Uh, my grandpa bought it. He used to take Sunday drives, uh, lived in La Crosse, and it was a favorite drive of people to go up on the ridge north of La Crescent and uh, one day his radiator broke down, and he went into this driveway to get help, and there was an old hermit living there, uh, Simon Leapsch, and just a one-room shack. And my grandpa was a very friendly, gregarious guy, and he befriended this Simon. And there, there were a lot of people that wanted to buy that land, but uh, my grandpa was the only one who said, you know, you, I'll buy it, you can live here as long as you want. And then when you pass on to the next realm uh, someday, then, then I'll be up here. So anyway, that's how the land got in our family. My grandparents built, my dad built a cottage for my grandparents there after World War II. But my parents ended up living in that cottage, uh, that house that we called, uh, it was small. Uh, he raised six kids there. Uh, we did finish the basement and add on a little bit, but my my grandpa ended up living in a log cabin on the same land, and, and that's another story. But growing up, because it was a scenic drive and a lot of people would come from all over the world to see the apple blossoms or the fall colors, you know, probably like they do around here too, uh, we'd always get people stop in. And I was privy to conversations because I was always out playing or hanging on my dad's pant leg uh, where people would offer him money for the land. Uh, sometimes they were developers. Uh, sometimes they were, you know, people we had no idea what their intention was. But uh, uh, the stories circulating in the family were always that, gee, there's a lot of people who would like to buy this land, and they're offering uh, obscene amounts of money. Uh, and, and usually we would find out that they were developers and they wanted to put houses up there or something, because it was a beautiful view. 
And if you're looking at the pictures going around, you, you can see that. In fact, uh, I remember one day when I was a little tyke hanging on my dad's pant leg when uh, a very a distinguished uh, couple visited, uh, and I was, I was struck by them, and, and they walked out to the overlook like most people did, and then they came back and talked to my, my dad for a long time. I overheard this guy you know, saying that he wanted to buy the land. Uh, and um, my dad just kept saying no, and the amount kept going up. And my dad just kept saying, you know, no. You know, there's, there's no amount of money that we would sell this for that, you know, this land is worth everything to our family. You know, this is where our roots are. This is where our memories are. There's no amount of money that would be worth giving it up. Uh, I later found out that this gentleman was from the Milwaukee area, last name Davidson, and heir to the Harley-Davidson fortune. So it, it was a great example for me to see my parents. It wasn't just my dad. It was my grandpa, uh, my mom, too, my grandma. Uh, show this example that uh, their hierarchy of values. Land is the most important thing, maybe after family. And then short-term profit and all this stuff is lower down. And, you know, just cashing out and exploiting the land is the lowest value of all. In fact, it's not even considered ethical. That really affected me to have that example growing up. Uh, by the time I had a chance to go to college, uh, I just wanted to study uh, everything, and I studied biology, chemistry, geology, everything at Winona State. Um, I ended up working for the Fish and Wildlife Service as a research biologist um, for 15 years. Uh, and then our family was having conversations. My parents were getting a little bit older and a lot of talk about, well, what's going to happen to the land? You know, we know that there's all these people that would like to develop it and do terrible things to it if we weren't here protecting it. They, they were looking for a mechanism to protect it, knowing that after they were gone, or maybe if it didn't stay in the family, that it wouldn't be protected, that anything could happen to it. So we talked to attorneys. It turns out that some people try to write protective covenants and put things on the deed. But the attorneys all told us that they would never stand the test of time because as soon as you're gone and there's no one to enforce it, you know, local government doesn't care if you put something on a deed. Uh, it wouldn't mean anything. Uh, finally, we got a tip from the Winona County planning and developing director uh, Todd Brom that there was a, a thing in Minnesota called the Minnesota Land Trust and they were a private nonprofit group that was set up for exactly the kind of situation we were in where we were looking for an independent third party who would legally protect the land for us forever and make sure that our wishes according to a conservation plan that we designed uh, would be enforced forever, and it would be recorded at the county. It would go with the deed, no matter who owned the land or sold it in the future. So, so we did that, and we were one of the first families to protect our land with the land trust in southeast Minnesota. Sometimes you appreciate something even more after you've made a commitment to it, and I, I like to compare it to a good marriage. Uh, if you love something and you really care about it, and you really want to, to know it and spend your life with someone or it, land, making a commitment to it really deepens things and makes it more special. Finally, retiring farmer Arlene Hershey talked about how critical it is to have a community rally around the new generation of agrarians. 
and provide them a shot at getting established on the land. Our family is a transplant from the east when it got so bad that we couldn't farm anymore because the people who were surrounding us were uh, telling us when we could harvest our crops and things like that. And also that land was not accessible because we rented that ground that we decided to move to the Midwest. Uh, when we moved out here, uh, we moved away from all family and all friends. So it was important that we, uh, we were able to buy a la uh, some land out here on contract. So it was important that we had community to help us. And I'm so thankful that we had good neighbors and the church community that invited us and made us feel welcome in the community and helped us to get started. And it must have been just as Lance Stewart was just getting started that we got involved there. And we, so we learned a lot from, from those kinds of uh, extension was helpful. All different kinds of things like that were helpful to us becoming successful on our farm, plus our children. If we didn't have them to help us, we wouldn't have made it in farming. But our children were growing up, and they were off to college. And all of a sudden, my husband and I had no helpers anymore to run a 60-dairy cow farm. And at that time, we were milking three times a day. Not possible. So we, at a young age, and this is what I'd like to emphasize to anyone who's thinking about transitioning their farm, think earlier than you think you're ready. We weren't ready to retire, but we couldn't do all the work, and so we started to pursue a young person to help us, but with this in mind, that if this young person uh, worked for us a year and was still interested in farming, that they could start buying into our business. And we did that with several people because some of the young farmers they were ready to buy our place, but we weren't ready to sell it. <laughs> and so they went on, took some of their cattle with them, and did that. And what I can say with that is many farmers, older farmers, are telling us, how do you know that's going to work? That's scary, you know. But we always had a good um, contract in place, and we never had a problem with somebody walking away and feeling like they were cheated, and we never lost out as farmers either it could have happened, but generally if you, if you prepare, it's, it's very likely that it won't happen. So we started several farmers. Some, some of the people came for a year, decided they didn't like farming, and they let, went on. But in the meantime, one of our sons, who I, we thought would never come back to the farm, has now come back to the farm. And I'm enjoying having a son who we adopted when we moved here to Minnesota, and his children now on our family farm, and it has worked back to that. So I'm, what I'm saying to encouraging older people who are thinking about transitioning their farms, give a young person a chance, it will work, and don't be so scared. They, they have the enthusiasm and the, the, they have dreams, and some of them may not agree with yours, but they have dreams that they'd like to have to go on and they will be the, the income that you need to, to keep, keep it going. For young people, I just read just recently a man who was talking about how to be prosperous, and he said, look at your occupation as a service to others, not at how much money it can make, but as a service to others, and that has been a really important thing, I think, to really pass on to the next generation. If you're serving others with your whole heart and doing your job well, it'll be a service to others. And that's my hope that I 
my legacy would be that I would encourage young people to keep on farming because it's the best place to be. information on LSP's work to help transition farmland onto the next generation of farmers, see our Farm Transitions Toolkit at www.landstewardshipproject.org. If you have comments or suggestions about this podcast, contact Brian DeVore at bdevore at landstewardshipproject.org, or you can call 612-722-6377. Thanks to Laura Borgendale, a Western Minnesota musician, for Ear to the Ground's theme music. And a special thank you to all of Land Stewardship Project's members, who make initiatives such as this podcast possible. If you're not a member, visit landstewardshipproject.org to learn how you can support LSP. Thanks for listening. <music>